Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me back to 1 Samuel. And we are now in 1 Samuel, the second part of chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And we're going to be covering verses 6 to 19. Verses 6 to 19. And the title of today's lesson is The Sin of Envy. The Sin of Envy. So if you're able, please stand and we'll read God's word together. 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I'm going to start with verse 1, and we'll read all the way to verse 19. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, scripture reads, Now it happened when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan cut a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the eyes of all the people and also in the eyes of Saul's servants. And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with gladness and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they were merry and said, Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying was displeasing in his eyes. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands? Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul looked at David with suspicion from that that day on. Now it happened on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house. Now David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Then Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David, for Yahweh was with him, but had turned away from Saul. And therefore Saul turned him away from his presence and appointed him as his commander of 1,000. And he went out and came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways, and Yahweh was with him. Then Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, so he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a man of valor for me and fight Yahweh's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life for my father's family in Israel, that I should be the king's son-in-law? 
And so it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Meholothite, as a wife. Please be seated. Well, it was Pope Gregory I who finalized a list of seven vices, and they are commonly referred to as the seven deadly sins. And much has been written on these seven capital sins over the last 1,500 years because these were root-level sins from which a host of other sins often spring forth. Now, the first sin on this list is pride. But our focus this morning is on the second sin on this list, envy. Envy. You know, envy is is an often tolerated sin, isn't it? But envy can deceive us because it seems so innocent, innocuous, But God tells us repeatedly that sin or envy can be insidious, destructive, and even deadly. Proverbs says that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Proverbs also says that wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? The biblical account of Saul and David is one of the most explicit examples of envy found in Scripture. And our goal, our objective this morning, is to gain a better understanding of this sin of envy. Because God tells us, God commands us that we are to put off all our envy. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, lay aside all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy. So to help us to overcome the sin of envy, we'll seek to understand three aspects of the sin of envy this morning. First, we're going to look at the precursors to envy. Second, the development of envy. And third, the manifestation of envy. So first, let's look at the two precursors to envy. And we find these two precursors to envy in the first two verses of our passage. So again, if you have your Bibles, look down at verse 6. In verse 6, it says, It happened as they were coming, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, gladness, and with musical instruments. So by way of reminder, in chapter 17, we had read that David had his miraculous victory over Goliath. And after the Israelites saw David decapitating Goliath, from gripping fear, the Israelites were emboldened and they chased the Philistine people all the way back to their hometown. And so now, as we read here in verse 6, Israel is having almost like a victory parade. You know, when Argentina won their World Cup or when the Super Bowl uh, champions, when they win their game a few days later, they would often have these victory parades. 
it's similar in this situation. The Israelites had just won. They had just defeated the Philistines and now they were coming out for their victory parade. And King Saul, this was not his only victory in his lifetime. King Saul had been accustomed to success. God had chosen Saul, anointed him as king. God had blessed Saul with physical stature, power, and wealth. Saul had led the Israelites to victory over the Ammonites back in chapter 11 and over the Philistines in, in chapter 14. And so this most recent victory, although it was probably the greatest military triumph thus far, it was not the first time that King Saul had succeeded. The Bible describes many instances when women would come and sing and dance to celebrate military victory. You remember after the Exodus, it was Moses and Aaron's sister, Marion, that took the tambourine with her hand and all the women went out with her with tambourines and with singing. And scripture says that Miriam answered them, sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Deborah, one of the female judges in Judges chapter five, sang a victory song. And Jephthah, after his military victory in Judges chapter 11, when he comes home, it's his daughter that comes out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. An interesting archeologist have even uncovered in Canaan, in the area around Israel, many clay figurines depicting women playing tambourines. And they seem to have a connection with praises of victory. So when God intervenes and decisively in the lives of his people, their response, the God's people's response is to sing his praises. But once a person experiences success and that success all of a sudden is threatened or begins to wane, what happens? That person will often be tempted to ask questions. Like, what about me now, God? Why not me? One person wrote, envy follows success like night follows day. Success precedes envy. We are typically tempted to become envious when we're good at something and when we do something well. I'll give you an example. This may be a silly example. Uh, sometimes I'll watch the Olympic Games, especially the women's uh, or the Winter Olympic Games, and figure skating is a, a popular program that I would watch. And when I see uh, Olympic figure skaters dancing or skating, um, there's no envy that I have. I, I don't envy them at all because I, I'm a middle-aged man. I, I don't ice skate, let alone figure skate. I don't watch TV and see a figure skater and say, oh man, I wish I could be like them. <laughs> I, I'm envious of the figure skater. But imagine if you were a young athlete and you had just won two or three national competitions in figure skating and you see a teammate 
someone from your own country take the spot of the Olympic team that you thought should have been your spot. It's when you're good at something and when you've experienced success and that success wanes or is compromised that you and I are tempted to become envious. So the first precursor to envy, even though it doesn't seem intuitively obvious, is actually success. But there is a second precursor to envy. So the first precursor is success. The second precursor is comparison. Comparison. Look at verse 7. And the women sang as they were merry and said, Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, some debate whether or not these singers actually sung this song to truly contrast Saul and, and David. Perhaps they were simply just stating the obvious and what was actually true, but what both Saul and David had done. But one thing is clear from this verse. What is clear is that when you hear this verse and when you sing this verse, you are comparing David and Saul. Both names are used in the same song in the same sentence. It's actually a common feature in Hebrew poetry to begin in the first half of the verse with a particular term or statement and intensify it in the second half. And in fact, in several parts of the Old Testament, there's actually a common parallelism between thousand and ten thousands. We see it in Deuteronomy, several times in the book of Psalms, and in Micah chapter 6, verse 7. And this verse, Saul has struck his thousands, and David his ten thousands, it's actually repeated two more times in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 11, and 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 5. So what we learn is that this verse has become ubiquitous throughout the people of Israel. It became perhaps the most popular song. I mean, in modern day vernacular, it would be like the number one song like 30 years ago that continues to be streamed, all right, even today. And so when you hear the song, everyone would know the words. And so the song would be sung and people would already have memorized. Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. It was a chorus of a popular song that everyone had organically memorized. So the second precursor is comparison. One person says, where there is no comparison, no envy. When you and I are envious, we are always comparing ourselves with someone else. And so understanding these two precursors, we understand the truth that when we're good at something, when we've experienced success, and when we compare ourselves to others, that double combination creates fertile soil for envy. And that is exactly what happens to King Saul in this passage. 
So we see the precursors to envy, but it doesn't stop there because in and of itself, comparison and success are not sinful. They're just the precursors. But second, let's look at the development of envy. And envy, although it can come very quickly, a lot of times envy develops insidiously. So let's look at verse eight and nine. The first stage of envy is anger. Anger. Look at verse eight. The Bible says, then Saul became very angry. Very angry. What happens is that when you and I, as human beings, when we evaluate something that we see and we find it lacking or even wrong, it leads to anger. Anger is actually a moral emotion. It is an emotion, but it's a moral emotion. So when we see something that we feel is not right and it is wrong, the natural moral emotion is anger. That is why God, who is our, the holy God, when he sees sin, his natural and appropriate and holy response is wrath and anger. Anger is a self-contained judicious system reacting to a perceived wrong with energy. So notice what happens. Saul hears the women singing this chorus and he evaluates the song and the lyrics and he becomes furious. When, when something is not morally right in our estimation, we respond to anger. And when we get angry over the wrong things in the wrong way, then that anger is sinful. So not all anger is sinful, but when we get upset at the wrong things in the wrong way, then that anger becomes sinful. So the first step, the first stage of envy is anger. But there's a second stage. And that second stage of development of envy is discontentment. Discontentment. Look again in verse 8. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying was displeasing in his eyes. It was displeasing. He wasn't happy with what he was seeing. He was discontent. Saul resented what he perceived as the people's lower assessment of his fighting abilities. And notice that the text says that this saying was displeasing literally in his eyes. Those of us who are, recall back in chapter 16, we learned that when God sees, he's not a passive onlooker. He's not like us when we go to the Grand Canyon and we just look and marvel at what we see and be a passive observer. When God sees, everything that God sees is in accordance to his plan. He works all things and as he sees, everything that he sees uh, is, is everything that he has control over. 
But when you and I see as human beings, we see just about everything is outside of our control. So Saul sees the women singing. He hears their voice. This is a victory parade for him. They were coming to him, not to King David. And yet when he hears this chorus and evaluates the chorus, it was displeasing in his eyes. Discontentment oftentimes is closely associated with ingratitude. And so really the the remedy of discontentment is to replace discontentment with a heart of thanksgiving, right? God tells us in everything to give thanks. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first stage is anger. The second stage is discontentment, which leads to the third stage of development of envy, And that stage is jealousy. Jealousy. Look again at what Saul does in verse 8. First, Saul became very angry, for this saying was displeasing in his eyes. And then what does he say? Now what more can David have but the kingdom? Saul had told King Saul back in chapter 15, that Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and he has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And Saul here senses that David might very well be that neighbor who is going to replace Saul. We had learned from the previous lesson, Jonathan already figured that out right? Jonathan took off his royal robe. He was, the, in a sense, the rightful heir to the throne. He was the firstborn son, presumably, of King Saul. The, 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 the royal crown would be passed over to him. He was next in line. But Jonathan, in, who had every reason to be envious, uh, takes off his royal robe and gives it to David. King King Saul could and should have done the same thing, but instead Saul felt threatened that something that was his might be lost. So what is jealousy? Jealousy is the fear of losing something that you have. So a jealous person will fight viciously fiercely to protect one's right or one's uh, possessions. God is a jealous God. Jealousy in and of itself is not sin. God is a jealous God because he demands from his people faithfulness and exclusive worship. So when it says here that Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on, This is a mark of a jealous person that feels and is showing suspicion toward another person. I mean, imagine with me, if if his girlfriend stays out late without him, a jealous boyfriend might feel uneasy and, and raise suspicion. 
So here are the developments of envy. There is first anger, then discontentment, and then jealousy. And as this develops and it's left unchecked, it culminates with the sin of envy. Now, let's pause for for a moment. I think we have to first now define what exactly is envy? What exactly is envy? Even people who aren't Christians know what envy is and that envy is not a good thing. Socrates called envy the ulcer of the soul. Aristotle wrote that envy is a disturbing pain excited by the prosperity of others. That when there's prosperity in other people, when a person has disturbing pain that's excited, that, according to Aristotle, is envy. Thomas Aquinas describes envy as being sorry for another's good. And Jonathan Edwards writes that envy is a spirit of opposition to others' comparative happiness or the happiness of others considered as compared to their own. So in other words, what Jonathan Edwards is saying is that envy is that when you see others happy, and um, especially if they're more happy than you, and you're opposed to that, that is envy. When, When the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, if you and I do the opposite, That is envy. An envious person opposes Romans 12, 15. An envious person rejoices at the misfortune of others and grows sad when others are blessed. A person who is envious is highly competitive and has an inflated sense of entitlement. In another way of stating it, someone who is envy, envy hates to see others happy. Now, you may then say, well, what what then is the difference between jealousy and envy? Because a lot of times, if you right now pull up an English dictionary and you look up the word jealousy, some dictionaries will actually say that jealousy and envy, at least the two English words, are synonymous. They mean the same thing. But I want to make a distinction, not to quibble with the English dictionaries, but I want to at least contrast or make distinction of the concept of what I will call jealousy and what I will call envy. Jealousy is a hostile disposition toward a rival. But envy seeks pleasure in the misery of his rival. Let me give you another illustration. My five-year-old son, Luke, is in the room, and Luke likes to go to the beach and play in the sand. And so sometimes we'll see Luke go to the, uh, play in the sand at the beach, and sometimes he'll do his best to try to make like a sand castle, and he'd get some water and bring out his sand toys and maybe to make a sand, a sand castle. Now, imagine with me one day we go to the beach, Luke 
is playing in the sand with the sand toys. And another boy comes and starts to make a sand castle. And the start of the sand castle looks, to his estimation, better than his. Well, one possibility is that uh, Luke becomes jealous, uh, especially if this boy comes over, because this boy was, is just making sand castle with his hands. He doesn't have any tools. He doesn't have any sand toys. And Luke has like 20 sand toys. And this boy comes to Luke and says, um, you have 20 sand toys. Can I have some sand toys to make my, my, my sand castle? And Luke is feeling threatened. He's like, his sandcastle already looks better than mine. And um, why would I want to share my toys um, and, and, and not allow myself to make the best sandcastle that I can make? And so by having this hostile disposition towards his rival, Luke is jealous. He feels threatened. And uh, he's obviously, uh, in his estimation, this isn't the right reason, uh, you know, to, to feel jealous, but, but he feels jealous. But envy goes so much further. Because when a person is envious, he delights in the misery of the other person. If Luke goes from jealousy to envy, instead of just not wanting to share his toys and not want to talk to the, the, the second uh, child, an envious boy would go over to the other boy's sandcastle and crush and destroy the other boy's sandcastle. Because envy delights in the misery and the destruction of others. Do you see and can you feel how how terrible and how utterly ugly envy is. It's not that the other sins, it's not that, that, that jealousy and sinful anger are not sinful. But when left to its natural development and it becomes envy, it, 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 and left in and of itself, it will manifest itself in destruction. You and I cannot humanly possible harness and hold to envy. If left unchecked, envy will lead to action to harm. And that is what happens to King Saul here in this passage. So let's look at the third aspect of envy, the manifestations of envy. And there are four ways that, that envy manifests itself in Saul's um, life in this passage. Let's first look at the first manifestation because it affected Saul's speech. Look in verse 10. Now it happened on that next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the middle of the house. Now that's an interesting description. Right, first of all, I mean, there's this description. It's not the Holy Spirit that enters Saul, but it's an evil spirit. We had learned that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Yahweh, came mightily upon Samson. 
came mightily on King Saul, and then in chapter 16, came mightily on King David. And now with these progression of events, it is now an evil spirit that has come mightily upon Saul. But look what immediately happens next. The text says that Saul raved, R-A-V-E-D, raved in the midst of the house. The word that's translated raved is the exact same word that normally should be translated prophesied. So when the Holy Spirit entered Saul back in chapter 10, it said he immediately prophesied. Remember when the Holy Spirit came upon the church at Pentecost, one of the first things it did was it affected their speech. I mean, it affected their speech in, uh, as fulfillment of Joel chapter two in terms of them also speaking in tongues. But nonetheless, what came out of their mouths was words that were controlled by the Holy Spirit. But when we let envy develop, one of the first things it will do is it will come out in speech. And Bible translators, or at least some English Bible translators, will say, okay, we can't use the word prophesy. <laughs> so what's a, what's a negative word? And some Bible translators will use the word rave. And to rave, if you look it up in the English dictionary, to, to rave is basically illogical, irrational speech. So what happens is that when envy sets in, the first manifestations is it affects our speech and what comes out of our mouths, it's not that it's necessarily incoherent, like we're speaking gibberish, but it's illogical. It's irrational. It, it, it doesn't make any sense in terms of wisdom, but it becomes foolishness. But there's a second manifestation of envy, and we see it affect Saul's speech, and second, it causes Saul's assault. Saul's assault. Look again in verse 10 and 11. Now David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Then Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Notice that the text says it happened twice in a short period of time. So it wasn't like he just, Saul just blew up and lost his temper and it was a one-time thing. It happened repetitively. It was ongoing. There was such a strong desire that Saul had to destroy David that he was looking to hurt, sabotage, perhaps even kill his rival. If you have your Bibles, I actually want you to turn back to Genesis chapter four. I'd alluded that I think the relationship between Saul and David uh, was one of the most explicit examples of the sin of envy. But it's not the first. Perhaps the first clear account of the sin of envy is the story found in Genesis chapter four between Cain 
and Abel. Let me just read for us by way of reminder, Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. Now it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. And Yahweh had regarded for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So notice the, 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 the similar characteristics this story has with Saul and David. First, let's look at the two precursors to envy. First, there is success. And it may not seem that clear to you, but if you read the text, you'll see that Cain was successful as a farmer in his agriculture, and God had blessed him with the fruit and the bounty of his harvest, and that whatever he planted, the vegetation, he received a good crop. Not only that, but Cain is actually the first person recorded in the book of Genesis that brings an offering. This is the first account, and Cain's the first to do it. Cain had been so blessed with his agricultural success he says, I've got extra. I should do something with this. And so he brings his, uh, the, presumably, uh, at least some of his crop. It could have even been the best of his crop. We don't know. And he brings it as an offering to God. So there's success. But second, there's undeniable comparison. Because what happens? Abel does the same thing. And if you read the text, Abel comes in second. So Cain, he's got his crops. He's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to bring an offering, all right? And perhaps Abel was already planning to do the same thing, but the text says that Abel, Abel comes in second. And so now there's immediately uh, an unavoidable comparison. And what happens? God has regard over Abel and his offering, but had no regard for Cain. So success, comparison. And then that becomes fertile soil for the development of envy. Look again in verse five. Uh, but for Cain and for his offering, God had no regard. So Cain became very angry, very angry. He looks, he sees, this isn't right. I came in first. Uh, yeah, I'm bringing crops, but that's what I do best. And I'm bringing you to show you my success, God, and you have no regard for me and you have regard for, for my brother who came in after me. 
it incited Cain's anger. And second, it leads to discontentment. Look again at the text. Why your anger? Or Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. His countenance fell. I mean, his face, you know, sank. He became sad. He was displeased. He became discontent. He looked despondent. His face was downcast. Cain was dejected. So there's anger, there's, there's discontentment. And then third, it leads to jealousy and subsequently envy. And notice that this is so dangerous when it comes to this point, that the text reads that, that God comes to warn Cain. Like in Adam and Eve, when they were tempted to sin by the tempter in Genesis 3, God could have warned them, right? He could have come in and said, hey, um, you know, Adam and Eve, I created them, Satan. Let me just have a private chat with them and tell Adam and Eve, hey, be careful. Uh, you shouldn't listen to the tempter. He doesn't warn Adam and Eve. He just gave them his commands. But here in chapter four, this is so dangerous. God warns Cain. And he says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you keep this up and don't do well, sin is lying at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. And we, of course, we know the rest of the story, right? Look what happens in, 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 in verse eight. Then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. He killed him. He didn't just, you know, spur the moment, kill Abel. What led to murder was the sin of envy. You and I have to, to, to be vigilant about this, this deadly sin. If you and I allow envy to set in our hearts, it will eventually, it will inevitably lead to destructive and even sometimes violent behavior. In fact, even as you look at our fallen world, not all violence, but certainly a fair amount of violence occurs as a manifestation of envy. So we see the manifestation in one speech in terms of even violent assault. Third, there's a third manifestation of envy, and that third manifestation is fear. Fear. Look again uh, in verse 12, uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 12, it says, And Saul was afraid of David, for Yahweh was with him, but had turned away from Saul. So Saul's envy had affected his words. It affected his actions. His envy also affected his soul, and it brought upon him anxiety and fear. You see, Saul's primary concern throughout his life 
was ultimately not God's honor or even his people's welfare. He was most concerned about himself and that became the root cause of his envy, which leads to anxiety and fear. Because what he feared was that his reputation was at stake. And so because of this, uh, Saul acts uh, in a couple of additional ways. First, notice that Saul removes David from his royal court. He removes David from his royal court. And you see in verse 13, it says, Saul turned him, that is David, away from his presence. How quickly things have changed. After David was victorious over Goliath, we had read that King Saul said to David, you're not ever going home to your father again. You're gonna stay in our house, in my family. You are going to be a part of my own household. And because of envy, it led him to say, okay, I changed my mind. I, I want you away from my presence. And he sends, uh, he sends David away. He removes him from his royal court. Secondly, he quickly demotes David because we had read earlier in the chapter that after David's victory over Goliath, David was set as commander over the entire army. He replaced Abner as commander of the army, and now he gets demoted, even though it doesn't seem like a big demotion, but now he only becomes a commander over a thousand people, a smaller army, not the entire army, and Saul is then sending him away to fight with just those 1,000 men. And so Saul's hoping, all right, if, if David doesn't get any face-to-face -face time with the royal court, and I send him away with just a smaller army, you know, somewhere far away, that people will start to forget about David. And this popular song, all right, will go down in the popularity chart. But the, the opposite effect happens. Look at verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David. All Israel, all Judah for he went out and came in before them. And so Saul is in an even more precarious state. He can't remove David now. He's the most popular person in the entire nation. And so even given this great popularity that David now has, it would now be difficult for Saul to delay fulfilling his promise. Remember, one of the promises that he made was whoever killed Goliath would receive uh, the hand in marriage of one of his daughters. And so, so Saul comes up with this tactic. He says, okay, I, I promise this. I will let David, you can marry my oldest daughter, Merab, but in exchange, you're gonna have to go out and fight and be a man of valor. I think Saul's tactic here is that the more David fought, the more likely he would get injured or even killed, and hopefully he will die so that Saul would be rid of David for good. He thought if only the Philistines could kill David, that would end his problem. So we see it affecting his words, his actions, his soul with gripping fear. Fourthly, we see the manifestation. It affected Saul 
in his duplicity, his duplicity. Let's again read in verse 18. David says, who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be king, the king's son-in-law? So when, when King Saul explains and says, hey, let's have the deal here. I'm gonna give you my daughter in marriage, but you continue to fight, all right, with fewer men against the, the, the meanest enemies. And, and, and so David is saying, you know what? I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. I don't have the social standing to be able to marry the king's daughter. And by using David's reply, Saul then has an excuse to be able to revoke his promise and give Merab to another man. And so, so, so Saul, in his two-facedness, in verse 19, it says that when the time came for his daughter Merab to be given to David, she was given to another man. So King Saul reneged on his on his pledge, showing himself to be an evil, duplicitous man. So what, so what can we gain from this story? Well, I think there's at least several obvious ones. First is that you and I need to watch out for the precursors of envy. Again, it doesn't mean that you and I don't try to do the best that we can. Success is always great and to be welcomed doesn't mean we can never compare anything. But when there is success and there is comparison, it becomes fertile soil for envy. Second, you and I need to recognize the development of envy. It starts off with feeling a bit angry. It leads to discontentment and then it breeds jealousy. And when you and I notice this development in our heart, we have to nip it. We have to do all we can to, to mortify it. It's like, um, you know, we're heading into the rainy season. If one of you notices that there's a small leak in your roof, you have to fix it. It may not rain today, it may not rain tomorrow. But one day this season, there's going to be rainfall and there could be significant permanent destruction to your home. So recognize the development of envy. And then thirdly, mortify envy before it manifests its destruction. It can lead to irrational words, harmful assault, consuming fear, wicked duplicity. Let me leave you though with three practical ways that we can overcome envy. First, and I know we sometimes say this all the time, but it all begins with our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we have to come to Christ, I mean, to, to, to want to repent, to want to ask for forgiveness. The reason Jesus died was that he wanted to die for all our sins, including the sin of envy to pay not only for the punishment of the sin, but, uh, but the presence and the power of the sin of envy. So we need to come and confess our sin to Christ. And for those of us, if we are not yet truly trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that is the first step. Without Christ, 
there is no overcoming of envy. But second, I think a second practical way is that I would encourage us to cling to the grace of God. Cling to the grace of God. What I mean by this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Paul writes, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. See, when you and I cling to God's grace, it helps us come to the reality that we don't need anything else. We don't need what others have. We're not lacking. We have grace. We have God. Our value is wholly based on what God and through Jesus has done. Christ's righteousness has been credited to us. We, as his children, have an eternal inheritance. What more can we want? What more can we need? Cling to the grace of God. And thirdly, be thankful. Give thanks. A thankful person doesn't grumble or complain. A thankful heart is content with God. Contentment and envy cannot coexist. Thanksgiving and envy cannot be together. That's why Paul says in Philippians, not that I speak in want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. Do you get that? Sometimes when you read, you're like, okay, yeah, I do need to learn how to be content when I don't have much. But what do I need to learn when I have success, when I have abundance? Well, because abundance and success is a precursor to envy. But when you've learned Christian contentment, it overcomes and it outshines and it casts out envy. I've learned to be content whatever circumstance I have with humble means, how to live in abundance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So come to our Lord Jesus Christ, cling to his grace and be thankful. Let's pray.